0: Good morning, and welcome to Convocation. My name is Beverly Lapp, and I direct the core uh, program, which Convocation is part of. Before we begin today's program, Sarah and Claire have an announcement about the Student Safety Shuttle.
1: Um, Hi, I'm Sarah Hofkamp, and I helped to start the organization first, or the Functional Immediate Response for Student Safety Team. Um, I just wanted to clarify some of the rules for the Student Safety Shuttle, which has been used, and that's really great. So, for instance, for the drivers, um, yeah, anyone's welcome to call the shuttle at any time during the night, starting at 8.30 on weekends, Um, and the service is entirely confidential. Um, The only people that will ever know that you took the shuttle will be the drivers and yourself. Um, Let's see. Um, There are some rules for the passenger, though, and... um, Claire's going to take those away. I'm Claire, and I'm the co-coordinator, along with Megan Eaksy of for the shuttle. Um, the passenger rules, we're only going to pick up three people at a time, and it's required that you wear your seatbelt. Um, if you show signs of severe alcohol poisoning, we aren't going to pick you up, but we will call 911. Um, this service is not um, qualified to respond to sexual assault, and we won't respond to it. It's a preventative service, rather than a reactionary one. And we also, as drivers, can ask you to exit the vehicle any time, as our safety is important, too. Um, Also, we hope you don't sue us. (laughs) (laughs) If you have any questions about this or any other aspect of FIRST, you should definitely ask. And um, keep using the shuttle if you don't feel like you can get home safely. That's what we're here for. And we really do want to serve y'all, so thanks.
0: Thank you Sarah and Claire for your leadership on this. Welcome to Convocation and please put away distractions, particularly screens and homework at this time as we offer our listening and learning readiness to the people who have planned today's presentation in honor of Black History Month. At this point I'll ask Devon Kramer, Diverse Students Coordinator here at Goshen College to open up the program for us. Join me in welcoming Devon.
2: Just a little while long
3: Yeah. March on, March on, just, just a while everything, everything, yeah, everything will be alright.
4: Thank you, Voices in Harmony, for that um, Negro spiritual very appropriate for um, what we're going to talk about today. The song represents mourning, but also hope that everything will be all right. Good morning again. My name is Devon Kramer. I work in our Center for Intercultural and International Education Office as a Diverse Student Programs Coordinator. And And welcome to today's convocation. As many of you are aware, February is Black History Month. Black History Month was created in 1926, founded by Carter G. Woodson first as Negro History Week. The month of February was selected in deference to Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, who were both born in February. By the late 1960s, thanks in part to the Civil Rights Movement and a growing awareness of black identity, Negro History Week had evolved into Black History Month on many college campuses. President Ford officially recognized Black History Month in 1976, calling upon the public to seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of black Americans in every area and endeavor throughout our history. This morning we will share reflections on issues of black identity and experiences. I found it important to continue to use this opportunity to hear from students and give them space to share stories pertaining to their experiences and their insights into Black History Month. In my experience as a Black Student Union advisor, it is not uncommon for me to hear from students that they struggle to find space to be heard, welcomed, and affirmed. This space will be created this morning. We will share not as representatives of the black experience as a whole, but they will share their own personal truths. We will begin with Etching Agutu, who will share a poem titled The Average Black Girl, written by Ernestine Johnson.
5: I'm about to perform will make most of you uncomfortable. It is for this reason that I wasn't going to perform it until I realized what we're here for. And it's not for people who shied away from the truth. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., 1968, USA, for having a dream. Steve Biko, 1977, South Africa, for I write what I like. Malcolm X, 1965, USA. And for them that I must read it, and for every man, woman, and child who ever sacrificed their lives for the liberation of black people, and because every racist and colonialist who ever, who ever preached divide and conquer wins every time we fight each other, and because my experience of blackness is just as valid as they are. They say I'm not the average black girl because I'm so well-spoken poised, full of etiquette, a white man's token. I remember my ex's mother telling me, I don't know how I would react when he brought back home a black girl, but I like you because you talk so white. Well, when did talking right white equate to me talking white? They say I'm not the average black girl. No, 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 not the average black girl because the pigment of my skin is just a shade darker than that black girl over there. You know that black girl over there? The black girl with the nappy hair? The black girl whose elbows can't go a day without lotion? Whose hearts and heads are filled up with self-hate and bottled up emotion? The cocoa brown girls who have to face society every day and be tough? Because no matter how good they straighten their hair, the good is still not enough. See, luckily for me, I do not fall in that category. They say I'm not the average black girl because I speak with so much class. I have too much, but just enough sass, and not too much, but just enough pizzazz, you know, just a little bit of attitude because you don't want to come off as one of those average black girls and come off as rude, you know, popping their gum and shaking their necks. Those Those black girls get, like, no respect, but luckily for me, I pass. My father, brother, and men I date, pants don't sag, and when I speak, I pronounce every syllable and the comb part down the middle of my hair is naturally visible. Oh, oh, it must be a weave, because you all know the average black girl ain't got class. See, they say I'm not the average black girl, because I corrected the professor when he used the word conversate. Converse. The word is converse. And in case you didn't get the memo, there are eight, not nine, planets in the universe. And when you're watching the pla- and you went when you're watching the your stocks move up and down, remember Oklahoma and a small town. One of the first Wall Streets was a Black Wall Street that mysteriously got burned down. Oh, they say I'm not the average Black girl, but let's flip the script and rewind this thing, repaint the lines that have been blurred out for time. Because the average Black girl that I know, <laughs> now the average Black girl that I know made 19 trips through the Underground Railroad to free the slaves. Sat on segregated buses, refused to get up, and paved new ways. See now the average black girl that I know, the average black girl that I know, were Egyptian queens like Hatshepsut, who were ruling dynasties and whole armies of men. So excuse me as I set fire to this point because I am tired. Tired of the stereotypes black girls have fallen into because of American mentality. But not half as tired as Ella Baker. Diane Nash. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, Miss Fannie Lou Hamer. i far more tired than I am. But do you think the ones who say I'm not the average black girl even care? No. So pardon me if I can't openly accept your compliments. Pardon me if I can't openly accept your compliments. It's just that the average black girl that I know had courage to suppress every fear and fought for justice year after year. So as I construct these words, pardon me as I shed a tear because I'm not half the black girl she was. See, there's a minor clause. She was out there fighting, breaking, and changing laws. So as I bowed unto my black queen standing in the merit of her work, and as American society continuously throws its supercilious words unto me, I say no.
4: On Monday of this week, I traveled with four students to St. Mary's College to hear Michelle Alexander speak. You'll see in my PowerPoint um, a few of the students, and you'll also see me with Michelle. Michelle is an associate professor of law at Ohio State University, a civil rights activist, the author of The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. During her lecture, Michelle shared statistics, such as the fact that there are currently more African American adults under correctional control, via prison, jail, probation, or parole, than there were enslaved in 1850, and that as of 2010, more black men were denied the right to vote than in 1870, when Jim Crow laws were amended. She shared that in some areas of this country, more than half of working age African American men have a criminal record, thus subjecting them to legalized discrimination and a permanent second-class status. She shared that the brutal police killings of African-American men and women today is comparable to the number of lynchings that occurred during the Jim Crow area. The significance of these statistics is that while most Americans break laws, if I did a poll in this room, most of you would probably admit that you've broken at least one law, even if it was very minor. And of course, all races commit crimes in similar comparison to one another. But it is poor people of color who are targeted and filling up prisons at astronomical rates. She challenged us to compare our progress of racial justice and equality, not by looking up at the rich, well-to-do people of color, such as Oprah or Barack Obama, but to look down at. G- at people Jesus describes as the least of these. It is how we treat the poor and disenfranchised that gives insight into how much racial progress we've, we've actually made. According to this measure, we not only have a ways to go, but we have taken steps backwards, creating an almost untraceable and improvable system of legalized discrimination. After Michelle's lecture, we took a, a moment to debrief, and students shared that the. The impact, of Michelle's, the impact that Michelle's lecture had had on them. Some of them shared that they felt a call to action. Some shared that they gained a new sense of hope. All experienced a positive awakening. It is my hope that we all find ways to seize opportunities this month to raise our awareness of the accomplishments, contributions, and experiences of African Americans, not only this month, but during every month of every year. Many of you are aware of the recent tragedies of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, and Eric Garner. These are not unique experiences in and of themselves, as these tragedies happen every day. What makes them unique is that they stroke the nerves of people who were tired of hurting, witnessing injustice, and are demanding change. Youth are given their lives, dropping out of school, and postponing their education to fully commit to a nonviolent awakening movement. And they're subjecting themselves to police and public backlash in a nonviolent way. They've spearheaded the campaign Black Lives Matter, as you can see up there, affirming this truth in the midst of experiencing systematic practices that show them otherwise. It is within these current racial controversies and arrests that we base our conversation today. So I'll now have our student panel come up, and we'll hear them share stories in the following areas, vernacular, hair, fears, advocacy, storytelling, and hope. If you can come up. These are students who are actively involved in different areas on campus and these particular topic areas were chosen because of the impact that they have on the lives of African Americans today. So I'll have you all share your name, where you're from, what year you are,
5: and what you're studying. Hello, hi, my name is Achyeng Gutu. Many of you know me as Annie. I'm a freshman and a broadcasting major, and I'm an international student from Kenya.
6: My name is Malcolm Stovall. I'm a second year from Seattle, Washington, history major.
7: My name is Antiana Terrell. I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm a second year. I'm a double major in art and writing.
4: So my first question relating to vernacular is, why do you speak the way that you do? What has been your interaction with others relating to the way that you speak?
6: Um, Some say that I have a Pacific Northwestern dialect. So uh, I speak um pretty proper english but there are subtleties um in the way i interact with different groups of people and those subtleties are often uh, picked up upon sometimes um, when i'm with my mom's side of the family which is caucasian i'll speak in a more um what what they would say proper manner i wouldn't use as much slang but when i go down south to visit my dad's side of the family Um, I kind of adopt some of their um, slang and dialect that they use in order to connect with them as well. So I feel like the way that I speak with different people is somewhat the way that I um, have unique connections with those people.
7: Um, Let's see, most people have told me that I have a country accent which, honestly, I've never been near the South more than like, what, seven days or so. So I don't know where this country accent has came from because I'm from Indianapolis and that's pretty as city as it gets. But um, growing up, I've noticed that when my mother is on the phone, she enunciates all of her words and she talks extremely pop proper to make sure that the person on the other line understands exactly what she is saying so that way they know that she has some type of education and they don't assume that she is a person of color because a lot of times we don't get as many opportunities as others. So. At first, I didn't understand why my mother talked that way when she was on the phone with someone who she didn't know. But as I got older, I finally understood that that's the reason why she didn't want to lose all of her opportunities.
5: For me, um, I went to a British system school, and so I was taught um, the Queen's English, and that's what I speak. And many people find it... uh, Shocking that I speak the way I do, given that I come from Kenya. And I just never knew that your social class or the kind of person you are, you're like judged on the way you speak and the way you interact with people. And so my family, my parents, strived to make, to make sure that I learned English and go to a British system school so I could be able to come to places like this and show people that, hey, we actually do speak English and very good English.
4: Thank you. Relating to hair, why is hair such a significant thing to uh, people of African descent? What has been your experiences, positive and negative, with others in relation to how you wear your hair?
5: For me, I wear my hair in very different ways, and I'm very versatile. But it gets offensive when people start to disc- like personify my hair and make it like like describe it as, oh, it kind of looks like an animal. It kind of feels like Doritos. Maybe if you put it like this, it would, you know, like sort of having their own input of what my hair should look like. You know, saying that maybe if you do it like this and if you color it like this, it would, it would look better. Or, hey, how do you make your hair look like that? It's the thing is that my hair looks like this all the time. I actually don't do anything to it. But, um, Just the versatility and being able to do many different things in my hair is something that I find very fun.
6: Um, Yeah, I mean, for me, I've, you know, there's always different haircuts you could get, uh, different ways to wear it. I had the afro first semester, uh, so, but um, in terms of uh, my hair and interactions with others, I feel kind of the same um, way Ani does. Uh, due to the fact that people a lot of times you know when, especially when I had an afro, people would uh, automatically want to touch it, and they kind of like want to touch it like the same same way you know they'd want to like pet a dog or something so um, in, in that way, it did feel a little it, it felt it felt demeaning, and, and I feel like some of there, there is roots in that um, in the dehumanization aspect of um, African Americans in this society, particularly when it comes to our hair. And uh, adding also what what, um, Ani said, due due to the fact that people have their own input, you know, they have their input, they know what they want to do with my hair, but they don't want to know the work that I have to do to have it the way it is. They don't know uh, how it's different, how I have to pick it out, how I can't shampoo it every day and whatnot. So it's like, they want to, like, do stuff with their, with their hair, but they don't really want to understand how you get there or um, your, experience, your own experience with it. So,
7: So I've been natural for four years, and to be natural means that I don't put any harming chemicals in my hair. So I don't perm my hair, which means I don't put this chemical and make sure that it's completely straight like no matter what, and it might take about 10 minutes or so, but I've gotta sit there and put this chemical in my hair. And honestly, I've watched a couple documentaries and that chemical is very harming to my hair. But a lot of people in my culture decide to do it and they feel that it's okay to go ahead and perm the hair instead of continue to wear it naturally and do what it does and let it be free. But this is my choice and Everyone else has their choice as well. I also think it's funny when um, I get a lot of different responses to my hair. So I'll get a, oh, my God, how did you get it like that? And that is so cool. Did you do it yourself, or did you have someone else do it? Or if I put in weave or I add hair, people go, is that all of your hair? So did you grow it out that fast? And it it's not People, it's not that po- it's not possible to grow your hair out that fast. So, yeah.
4: Thank you. Something that I notice when I talk to a lot of African Americans today, particularly parents and particularly um, mothers, when they learn of tragedies that I mentioned, like the Trayvon Martins, the um, the violent killings of police of young African American youth. I hear a lot of fear, fear stories from African Americans. So for my panel up here, describe your everyday interactions with the world. Do you have any particular fears?
7: Um, I have two major fears. The first is government, which is crazy because they're supposed to protect us. But when you have when you live in this society and you have your back against the wall all the time and you know that there's a possibility that a black man is killed every day, I fear that. And I fear that one day I'm going to get a phone call from my family saying that I need to come home because something has happened to my brothers. That's scary. I also fear success. And the reason why I fear it is because with success comes a lot of changes. And a lot of people oftentimes change who they are and lose who they are as their selves. And I don't want to do that. And I fear that that might happen and I might lose my ethnicity and who I've, my, all of my pride and everything that I've grown to accept as a human being. And I feel like that would happen with success.
6: Um, Yeah, some of my fears, um, I have similar fears, um, institutional uh, fears as Antiana just uh, explained. But some of the fears that I have is, you know, uh, me doing, like, some of the work that I do with others, such as Ani and Antiana. Sometimes I I fear that uh, people might use or try to... um, Force uh, me into certain areas that kind of work best for them um, in certain conversations, and I've 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 felt that um, to be I felt I felt that that was the case in certain conversations. Um, I also fear that there there will be I also fear advocacy because if no one really um, talks about uh, people of color issues on this campus, then uh, like, who will I mean it, technically it doesn't uh, affect the dominant culture which is uh, white Mennonite culture on this campus so I have a, I have a fear of advocacy and and uh, especially in a time where when you know this black lives matter movement um, is so prominent uh, there need there needs to be a voice and someone who who, brings the movement to college campuses. It can't just be out on the street. It has, it has to carry over to our institutions. So I know I, I live in a different world than a lot of you know, um, my, my dad's side of the family, and uh, I have to use you know, my platform where I'm at, and I have to help them out as well. So I'd say my biggest fear right now is uh, advocacy.
5: Um, for me, I agree with the other two people. But probably my greatest fear is myself, that I will somehow start to believe everything that is being said. I'll start to um, be part of the stereotype that has already been created. That's one big fear, because I feel like I'm already losing myself in all this, all this chaos, and I keep on like, trying to like, ground myself by thinking that like, when, when, when I'm back home in Kenya, something like racism wasn't there, because we're all the same, And I went to a school that preached, you know, you accept yourself, you you accept each other, you know, regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, all these things. And so I only literally started to know about racism a year and a half ago, and that's when I moved to the United States, when people were not, you know, not not somebody not allowing me into their house because I'm black, or somebody walking down the street and somebody yanking their kids off the sidewalk because I'm walking the same way. You know, all these things were really hard, and given that I live... My, here in America, um, my host parents live in an upper-class white neighborhood and it's hard for me to go back to them and tell them, hey, this is what happened today and how should I react. And it's also hard, you know, they don't know how to, re- to respond because they have never experienced something like this. And they can say sorry as many times as they can, but the thing is that this thing is still alive. I feel like I'm just being sucked into it, into something that I have no clue what it means.
4: Thank you for sharing that. Malcolm mentioned a fear of advocacy. And so my question is, do you feel that there's any sort of need? Do we need advocacy for African Americans? Why or why not?
6: Um, I believe that we need advocacy for African Americans uh, due to the fact that you, you know, if you you all were here for Devon's short presentation, uh, we're we're in an we're not in segregation anymore. We're not in Jim Crow era anymore. But we're in the uh, era of mass incarceration, and it's uh you know it's taking young black males especially and and females too um, off the streets, and and we're being incarcerated at a rate um, that's astounding and. That Michelle Alexander was talking about that creates not not a class system but a caste system. Um, so you, with that, a lot of your basic rights are denied. So you're second class citizens. Um, so I feel I feel issues that um, affect black people not not caused by black people but that affect black people uh, should be talked about and especially on this campus because. Uh, as you all may know, Goshen is historically a sundown town. Um, African-Americans weren't allowed to stay in a hotel at night. Um, they, weren't, they weren't allowed to get any property. So you see the demographics, how they are today between Goshen and Elkhart, it's no surprise. Elkhart um, has a high African-American population for a reason. It plays into the, the into the demographics of this college as well, so I think as um, as an institution that I assume wants to uh, launch away from that stigma, it is very important to uh, lay the groundwork and have um, have opportunities for these type of dialogues and and and, and, and types of understanding. Um, when it comes to issues that not only that That African-Americans carry the most burden of but not only just affect them It actually affects all of us in in a way, but we have to explore together how it affects us
4: Stu uh, this last comment on this question, and then I'll go to the next question
7: Okay. So I think that advocacy is very important and these are the reasons why so when you live in a system where You have everything against you, and no matter what you do, how you do it, you pretty much have this big, giant target on your back. You kind of need somebody to say, good job. I can't believe you made it, but keep going. It might get a little bit better, but it might be a little bit harder, but even though it's harder, you still need to keep going, and you need to keep doing what you're doing and keep being excellent at it, and the thing is... When you're in such a small group of people and you don't see a lot of people like you, it's harder to keep going. And it's harder to want to keep going. So when you have those extra people in your ear saying, it's possible, you can keep doing it, maybe you can be the next person to tell someone else your story, then I think advocacy is very important. Um, Last two questions
4: because of time and if we can keep it brief. What does this month mean to you? What are some sources of positive pride that you get out of this month and what areas would you like to see grow or change? What are some hopes that you have?
7: Okay, so I love this month partially because it's that one month that I actually get to express myself even more than I already do. But um, I love the fact that Everyone pretty much is supposed to look at our history and see what we've gone through and what we've done and what achievements we've made. Um, If you look in a textbook, there's not a lot of people like me in in a textbook, especially for history. But if you look on the internet and you try to find some research, there's so much information Like so many things you would have never possibly could have imagined that we've done. And this month, just this month, these 28 days gives me that opportunity, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. And we should find a way to give us more time. But, you know, that might not happen very soon. But when it does, I would be extremely happy.
4: One one more comment on this.
5: Um, for me, this is the first time I'm celebrating Black History Month, and so I'm looking at this as a learning opportunity to see ways in which black history can be celebrated more often. So can we thank our student panel for sharing?
4: In closing, um, I will offer one more event this month, a convocation this Friday, and at 28, and I'll be showing the film The Blacklist, um, and I'll also be having donuts, and there'll be some discussion there, too. So thank you for joining us for this convocation, and have a great day.